I want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, maybe you didn't know you had any brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, but you do. God is alive and at work in our city. It is such an incredible joy to be there. When God called my family there 16 years ago to start a new church in Las Vegas, Nevada, you could not have picked a place that was further off of my radar than Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm not originally from Las Vegas. I am from Alabama. And so, like where you're from, where I'm from, people don't go to Las Vegas, and if they do, they don't tell anybody, right? My hometown, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from there. It's real close. But God called my family there 16 years ago by His grace and invited us in the greatest joy and journey of our lives of planting and starting a new church in Las Vegas that would reproduce and multiply churches up and down the West Coast. And it has been, like I just said, the absolute greatest journey of my life. I have raised my children in Las Vegas, Nevada, and my children love Jesus. They're walking with Him. They're engaged in His mission. I wouldn't trade what God's done in my life in Las Vegas for anything in the world. It's been a lot like what you read in the New Testament, the first century church. Las Vegas is a pre-Christian culture. It means it's, in, by and large, most of the West Coast has never been exposed to the gospel. They haven't, been, they haven't had the gospel shared with them. Many of the people that we meet have never even met a Christian before. For example, 92% of the city of Las Vegas are non-evangelical. 60% of them declare no religious affiliation at all. They're in the new statistical category we call the nuns. They declare nothing on the census. Up and down the west coast of the United States of America, almost every major city, 90 to 95% of those cities are non-evangelical, non-Christian, never come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The west coast is the fourth largest numerical mission field in the world. The west coast of America. America is now the fourth largest lost nation on planet Earth. Only China, India, and Indonesia have more lost people within their borders than the United States of America. Forty percent of the unchurched population of America lives in the western United States. Here's what that means for us at Hope. God has birthed our church in the center of the fourth largest numerical mission field on planet Earth, and He didn't birth our church so that we could have a cool place to worship on the weekends. God birthed our church to reproduce and multiply disciples and churches up and down the west coast to the ends of the earth for his glory. So it has been an incredible, incredible journey. And I want to thank you for your investment in that. You've sent teams out to Las Vegas to serve the people in our city. You've given uh, through the North American Mission Board. So thank you for your investment in what God is doing there. But one of the great joys of being in Las Vegas about 11 years ago, God brought into my life the guy you just heard sing, Teddy Johnson. Wow. <clears throat> the Lord blessed my life when he sent Teddy Johnson into my life. God has done a unique thing. God took a young white kid from small town Alabama and a young black kid from inner city Camden, New Jersey, and put us together in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, God's got a sense of humor. Amen. But let me tell you what it's done. It's birthed the church in Las Vegas, Nevada. We have 45 different languages, first languages that we know of spoken in our fellowship. We look on Sunday mornings like somebody dumped a bag of Skittles out. 
We're red and yellow, black and white. We're all the colors of the rainbow, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we get the joy of serving in a church like that. And listen, I think that's what the church ought to look like. Amen? It's one of the things I'm enjoying about being here today. I'm loving this already. What God has done in the midst of your fellowship, don't take this for granted. Multicultural church is not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. And the problem is we have drifted in our flesh from the way the gospel began in the New Testament. You know, on the first Sunday of the first church in Jerusalem, they had to translate into 15 languages just so everybody there, you know what I'm talking about, right? We call it the gift of tongues. What it was was multicultural church. That's not even my sermon today. I don't even know how I got started in that. I just got up here and looked at you, and I'm like, man, this is awesome. I like this. It makes me feel at home. But I also want to say before I jump in, it is an honor to know your pastor and your pastor's wife, Michael and Terry Cat. What a gift to the kingdom of God. Amen. And it is an incredible honor for me to be invited to preach on a Sunday like this when you are celebrating 27 years together as pastor and people. Let me, let me just say to you, you know this. But God blessed you. God blessed this fellowship when he gave this gift of Michael and Terry Catt to this church and to this community. God blessed this church. But listen, God didn't just bless this church. I was reading just a few moments ago in 1 Thessalonians where it says that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from the Thessalonian church to the ends of the earth. Listen, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from Albany, Georgia and Sherwood Church. All over the world, people know the reputation and testimony of this fellowship. Do not take for granted what God has done in the life of this fellowship. There's a phrase, a quote that I heard a number of years ago. I want to read it to you. And it really, to me, encapsulates the life and ministry of Michael Catt. It's by a man named William James, and here's what it says. The great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. The great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. I don't know how that hits you today. But when I heard that for the very first time, when I read that quote, and it wasn't in a, I don't even remember where I read it, somebody's book that had quoted William James. I don't even really know who William James is. But when I read that quote, it resonated in me to the point that I feel like everything in me said, yes, I want to live my life for something that is going to outlast me. Michael, can I just tell you that, brother, you have modeled for a lot of people what it looks like to live your life for something that will outlast you. And as a preacher of the gospel, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the way that you've modeled it and you've done it in humility and Christ-likeness. What a blessing, what a testimony, both of you together. What a, Terry, thank you. Thank you for the way that you've modeled that because you have set an example for many to follow in. So thank you. Thank you. But this phrase, this quote by William James, not only to me models the life of Michael and Terry Catt, 
It also embodies a small group of people in the New Testament who were the first people called to the Lord to begin the movement that you and I now know as modern-day Christianity. It started in the book of Acts. In the opening pages of the book of Acts, this little group of people that had wrapped their hearts around something that was bigger than them, something that was going to outlast them, they launched the first church, the very first church plant ever launched. We read about in Acts chapter 2. This new church begins on Sunday number one. This is launch Sunday, if we were using today's terminology. Grand opening. They preach the gospel, and 3,000 people are born again into relationship with God. Now, I don't know how you measure success in church planting here at Sherwood, but I would submit to you if 3,000 people get saved on Sunday number one, that's a pretty good church start. Well, if that's not significant enough, this little group of people on Sunday number two, came back, and Sunday number two, they preached the gospel again, and on Sunday number two, so many people got saved, they couldn't count everybody, they just counted the men, and they said 5,000 men. So here we are two Sundays into this brand new church plant in Jerusalem, and there's somewhere between fifteen and 25,000 new believers. I'm not talking about... 25,000 people who checked the card. I'm talking about 25,000 people who surrendered the control of their life to Jesus, were radically born again into relationship with God, began to be in a process of being made disciples so that they could reproduce and multiply and touch the ends of the earth for the glory and honor of God. Within six months, this new church in Jerusalem had grown Historians and scholars tell us to over 100,000 people. 100,000. What if six months from now you could say, well, there's number 100,000. You don't talk about space problems. You imagine growing by 100,000 people in the next six months? Where would you put them? That's what's happening. We've read it so many times in the book of Acts that we just kind of read over it and make it sound like it's nothing. But in six months, 100,000 people in the city of Jerusalem had been born again. Historians go on to tell us that within 40 years, the gospel had spread to every corner of the known world. What if it could be said 40 years from today? We finished the mission. What if God were to begin something right here this morning that would be so radical, so life-changing that we could look up 40 years from today and go, you know what, the whole world's now heard the gospel. You know the problem with most of us? We don't even expect God to do stuff like that anymore. You do realize that the same God that was sitting on the throne in Acts chapter 2, moving in power, turning a city upside down, is the same God that is sitting on the throne today. Listen, he's never up for election. You talk about turning the world upside down? 
here we sit today, over 2,000 years from this moment in the book of Acts, and every person in this room can trace our faith back to what started on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem. When I understood all of this historical reality about this group of people, I, I began to ask myself some questions about them. What, what enabled them to be so mightily used of God? My friend J.D. Greer said it this way, Never has a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. If you look at this people in Acts chapter 2, you look at this little group of people, there was nothing significant about them. They had no talent. They had no education. They didn't have influence. Any of them that had influence walked away from it to follow Jesus. They didn't have money. They didn't have technology. They didn't have a strategy. They weren't relevant. They didn't have anything. And yet God used them to literally Turn the world upside down. What was it? Well, as you read these verses, I want you, if you've got your Bible, open to Acts chapter 1. I want to read some verses here, then I want to jump into it. And I want to pull some characteristics from these verses that enabled this group to mightily be used of God to change the world. Because here's what I believe. I believe God's still in the world changing business. Do you hear what I said? God's still in the world changing business. And I think if you and I will grab a hold of these things, and listen, I think the things that I'm about to mention, I think these things are already here in your church at Sherwood. I know they're in your pastor's heart. Acts chapter 1 says, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. After he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Now obviously in reading 14 verses there's, there's a lot more there than we can unpack in the time that we have left this morning. 
But I want to try to grab some principles, kind of an overview out of those verses because you could literally spend weeks and weeks unpacking all the truth that's there to help us identify some characteristics that were in their lives that, that here's the encouragement today, can also be in every one of our lives if we'll grab them and lay hold of them by faith. Here's the first one. They had a faith that produced obedience. They had a faith that produced obedience. Let me say it to you another way. They trusted God and they did what God said. (laughs) Now, I know that sounds simple. I know that sounds something like, choir, you can help me. That, That sounds like something we really shouldn't have to say, right? I mean, they trusted God and did what God said, right? You know the problem today? That's radical in church life. To simply listen to the voice of the Lord and then yield yourself and do what God says when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense, when it adds up on paper and when it doesn't add up on paper, you just listen for the voice of God and then do what God said. You say, where do you see that in these verses? Well, Jesus commands them in verse 4 not to leave Jerusalem but to wait. Now, you do remember what had just happened in Jerusalem, right? You didn't have to do a survey in Jerusalem to understand whether or not they were open to a new church being started in their community. No demographic study was necessary to determine whether or not there was an openness to the gospel message in their culture. Forty days earlier, they had made a very clear statement. As a matter of fact, the entire city turned out. They lined the streets, and as Jesus dragged across through the streets, they shouted, Crucify Him! In essence, they said, We don't want your Jesus. We don't want your gospel. We don't want your church. We don't want anything to do with this message, this man, or your mission. And Jesus said, here's the plan. We're going to start in Jerusalem. That tells us some stuff about these folks. Number one, they didn't make their decisions based on their feelings. Because let me tell you what they were feeling. Fear. They were terrified. Uh, Jesus, did, did you forget what they just did to you? If they'll do that to you, what do you think they're going to do to us? They didn't make their decisions based on their opinions. Because I promise you, they had some. Matter of fact, if Jesus had taken index cards and passed them out, And said, I'd like everybody to write down your top three cities where we want to begin this new movement. You'd have got a lot of variety, right? Let me tell you, one city wouldn't have been on anybody's card. Matter of fact, there'd have probably been one smart aleck in the group that didn't write down three cities. All he would have written is this. I don't care where we go, long as it's not Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Jerusalem. 
that didn't make sense. That didn't add up on paper. That didn't present well at the annual vision retreat. And yet the Bible says they went to Jerusalem. Why? It's what he said. They heard God speak. And they did what God said. You know one of the reasons why the church in North America is not being used mightily of God? Did you know that North America is one of two continents in the world where Christianity is on the decline? Every other continent, Christianity is growing. North America is one of two. North America and Europe. The only two continents on the face of the earth where Christianity is on the decline. With all of our budgets and buildings and programs and books and conferences and resources. You know why? One of the reasons I believe why the church in North America is not being mightily used of God. We've lost the ability to simply listen for the voice of God. And then do what God says when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. You see, faith demands intimacy with God. Let me prove it to you. Romans 10, 13, what does it say? Faith comes, or 10, 11, faith comes by what? Faith comes by what? And hearing by the word of? Faith comes by what? You know what that means? It's not faith until you hear. You ever heard anybody say this? Well, I'm not real sure what God's leading me to do, so I'm just going to step out in Listen, that's not faith, that's foolishness. It's presumption on God, and it is a very dangerous way to live your life or lead your family. Here's what we ought to do. Sit at his feet and wait until the voice of God speaks into our life. And when God speaks, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. Then we step out in faith. Why? Because God's always going to do what he said he was going to do. This church had a faith that produced obedience. Let me ask you a question, church. You listening for the voice of God? Here's what we like to do. We like to come up with our plan and then bring it to God and say, God, bless our plan. He already has a plan. He doesn't need us to come up with one. He's just invited us to press into Him, to hear from Him what He wants to do, so that then He can accomplish His plan through us. And when it happens that way, you know what happens? He gets all the glory. You know why? Because we have to step back and go, hey, that's His plan. I'd have never done it this way. Listen, I I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. You could have given me a thousand whiteboards and I could have had a thousand think tank sessions and come up with all the strategies and dreams I could come up with to do something great for God. Let me tell you what one city would have never been on any one of those whiteboards. Las Vegas, Nevada. 
But one morning in my devotional time, my God time in 1999, I'm sitting with him, minding my own business, reading God's word in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, I read this verse where Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also. When I heard it, I knew that God was speaking to my heart. I went and got my wife. We knelt down beside our, in our living room and we said, Lord, yes. We don't know where. We don't know when. We don't even know what. But the answer is yes. Two weeks later, Johnny Hunt, a pastor friend, comes to me and says, Vance, our church is starting a church in the fastest growing city in North America, Las Vegas, Nevada. God's put it on my heart. You're to be the pastor of that church. God spoke. You know what I've asked myself a thousand times? What if I hadn't been with him that morning? Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God was doing what he was doing in Las Vegas, Nevada with or without me. But I would have missed the greatest ride of my life. And the greatest ride of my life didn't come out of dreaming up some big plan for God. It came out of pursuing Him, listening for His voice, and when God speaks, simply saying, yes. we got to move on. I hear you all start Sunday school at 11, but on my watch, it's only 725. So <laughs> I've never been given so much time by Pastor Michael. Thank you. Here's the second thing. They had a passion that produced unity. There's a verse in the text that I read for you that proves this is not a Baptist church. You all right with that? Let me read it to you. Chapter 1, verse 14. These all with one mind. That's it. I've never been to a Baptist church where everybody's on the same page. That phrase, one mind, literally means one heart, one passion. Here's what that verse says. Every person in this fellowship had wrapped their hearts around one thing. What was it? Well, as Baptists, we love Acts 1-8 so much, we think that's what everything's about in Acts chapter 1. Matter of fact, we think the first seven verses of the book of Acts are just introduction to get us to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But the real thing they'd wrap their hearts around is in verse 3. Look at it. Verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I don't have time to unpack this very much, but just hear this. Jesus had 40 days left on planet earth. You know the power of last words. He had 40 days left on planet earth to speak to his disciples. Only 40. Then he was going to ascend back to the Father, send his Holy Spirit to empower believers. The Bible says for 40 days, all Jesus talked about with his disciples was one thing. It's almost as if he said, if you forget everything else I've told you in three and a half years, don't forget this kingdom of God. Shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus told them in the greatest sermon he ever preached in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 to seek first. He didn't say put it in your top ten list. He said everything in our lives is to revolve around this principle of the kingdom of God. Now here's what's sad. We in the church in North America, we don't even know what the kingdom of God is. We're so focused on building and establishing the local church, we think this is the goal. 
Listen, the local church is not the goal. It's a temporary tool established by Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom of God. When you get to heaven, there'll be no Sherwood Church, Hope Church, First Baptist Church, First Methodist Church. None of that's going to be there. You know what's going to be there? The kingdom of God. The local church is a temporary tool established by Jesus for the expansion of his kingdom. The kingdom is the big picture of what God's doing in the world. The kingdom is God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. And can I just share with you today that you and I are living in the greatest days in the history of the Christianity to be alive? There are more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ today on a global basis around the world than at any other time in human history. Give me an example. Did you know there have been more people come to Christ in Iran in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined? You're not hearing that on the news, are you? What is that? It's the kingdom of God. And you know what these people did? They said, we are going to wrap our hearts around the kingdom. Here's what that means. They didn't care about programming in the church. They didn't care what color the carpet was. They didn't care how loud or soft the music was. They didn't care if it was their culture or somebody else's culture. They wrapped their hearts around the mission that God was going to establish a kingdom on every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And they said, we'll forgive about all the rest of it and wrap our hearts around that what if what if the church in North America became like that don't misunderstand me I'm not saying we don't have passion in our churches today we got passion the problem is everybody's got passion for something different one person's got passion about this kind of ministry somebody else has got passion about this kind of ministry somebody else has got passion about reaching this particular group And because we don't have one passion, all this passion, instead of uniting us, you know what it does? It divides us. The scripture says a house divided against itself cannot stand. I'll just say this. One of the ways we've divided ourselves is culturally, racially, and by class. You know what you got here is unique. 86% of the churches in North America this morning are divided by race and class. You know why our nation is racially convulsing right now with all this turmoil? I'll tell you why. Because the church, the church has failed to allow the gospel to take its full mission of reconciling every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. When today we sit in a culture where neighborhoods and schools are more integrated than our churches... It's broken. What we have done is we have misrepresented the gospel, which 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says is the ministry of reconciliation. And I understand theologically that when it says it's the ministry of reconciliation, it begins by reconciling us to God. But listen, every time we get right with God, let me tell you what happens. We get right with one another. The ministry of reconciliation, if it is not this way, I promise you it was never real this way. What if in North America we got passionate about wrapping our hearts around the kingdom of God being represented in the local church and to the ends of the earth? Let me give you the third thing. They had a desperation that produced prayer. 
Faith that produced obedience. Passion that produced unity. Desperation that produced prayer. Can I read you some of the funniest verses in all the Bible? You do know God's got a sense of humor, amen? I mean, we laugh because God gave us a sense of humor. God's got a sense of humor. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. I'm going to read you. I've already read them to you once. I'm going to read them to you again. Look at verse number 9. And after he had said these things, while he was lifted up, while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You didn't get it, did you? You're not laughing. If you got it, you'd be laughing. You see, here's what's happened. Some of us read this stuff so many times, we don't see what's really here. Here's what that just said. Jesus, in verse 8, had just said, All right, guys, here's the plan. Everybody lean in close. The plan is we're going to start in Jerusalem. (laughs) And they're thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. They hate us in Jerusalem. He said, no, 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 here's the plan. We're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Then we're going to go to Judea and Samaria where you hate them. (laughs) So we're going to start in Jerusalem where they hate you. Then we're going to go to Samaria where you hate them. Then we're going to go to the remotest parts of the earth. Here's what that means. Places you don't know exist or even how to get there. So here's what he did. Everybody lean in close. He said, here's the plan. We're going to start where they hate you. Then we're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go where you don't know exists or even how to get there. And then he starts floating. (laughs) And I'm not talking about Las Vegas magic show floating. I'm talking about gone. The audacity of that. He throws this grenade in the room. We're going to start where they hate you. You're going to go where you hate them. Then you're going to go where you don't know how to get there. Anybody know what just happened? I left my fishing boat to follow this guy. I don't have any idea where he just went. You say, you're making that up. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. What does that look like? I believe if what happened next hadn't happened next, they'd have all died right there. And you'd have found 120 skeletons with their jaws hanging wide open. Look what happened next. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Here's what happened. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. They look down and the disciples are all going... And they said to two angels, would you go down there and tell them to move along? (laughs) You say, you're making that up. Read verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? 
this Jesus. And everything changed with these words. Who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. And when they heard that, everything changed. They ran back to Jerusalem. They ran up into that upper room. They slammed the door and they established a committee to do a demographic study to see if their community would be open to the kind of church they wanted to plant. Oh, no, 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 that's not what they did. They, they, they established a team to begin doing discipleship training so that they could teach people how to share the gospel effectively in their culture in a way that wouldn't be offensive. No, what they do, let me tell you what they did. They got down on their faces before God. And in a sense of desperation, they began to beg God Because here's what they knew. God, we are hopeless. We are helpless unless you show up. Lord, we don't have a shot. We don't have a prayer. The mission is too big. The objective is too difficult. The obstacles are too large. God, we are going to grab a hold of your throne. And we're not going to let go until you show up. And you do what you said you're going to do. They begged God to move. You know, one of the reasons the church in North America is not being used today. We've relegated prayer to moments of transition in our corporate worship services when we move people onto and off of the stage. We don't have time to pray to just pray. You ever run into problems in your church where you need more seats? Just call it a prayer meeting. There'll be plenty. Bring in the concert artist and you can pack the house. But call it a prayer meeting and there'll be plenty of seats. Let me tell you what I've come to learn. God in His sovereignty has chosen to limit His activity to the prayers of his people. You say, explain that. I really can't. It's true. God in his sovereignty has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. That doesn't mean God needs us. God doesn't need us. He's sovereign. It goes with the title. But in his sovereignty, he's established that the way he's going to work in this world is in response to the prayers of his people. You dig deep enough in any part of the world where God's on the move, let me tell you what you're going to find. A remnant of God's people grabbing a hold of the altar of God, begging God to move. Begging God to move. I'll quickly tell this story. God called me to Las Vegas. Moved there December 2000, two days before Christmas, rolled in with my family. Didn't know a soul in Las Vegas, Nevada. First week I'm there, I get a telephone call. On the other end of the line is a lady named Letty Peralta. She said, she's from the Philippines. She said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. She said, Pastor, I moved from the Philippines to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. 
She said, while living in Hong Kong, I met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. She said, that American family became my family. So much so that when, I moved, when they moved from Hong Kong back to the United States of America, I came with them. She said, we moved to a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church about six times called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia. And I heard a preacher by the name of Johnny Hunt preach the gospel like I'd never heard it before. She said, but then my family got transferred again. We relocated from Woodstock, Georgia to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, Pastor, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? Now, two weeks earlier, I'd loaded up a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia with everything I owned moving to Las Vegas, Nevada, and none of us had any idea Letty Peralta existed. We're 16 years old. We've seen thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in Las Vegas, Nevada. We started 35 churches out of our church. We work on, on continents all over the world. One of those where we're seeing hundreds of churches planted right now among an unreached people group in Southeast Asia where God is moving mightily. And people will call me all the time and say, where'd this come from? How did you do this? And I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm just trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines grabbed a hold of the altar of God and she said I'm not going to let go until God does what he said he was going to do and for 15 years we've been riding a wave of the favor of God's activity because one lady desperately begged God to move Vance Havner said this the tragedy of the hour is that the situation is desperate but the saints are not We don't need God anymore. We can have church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks whether God ever shows up or not. Not these people. Here's the last thing they had, and I'm just going to mention it and be done. They had, a, they had the spirit that produced power. You know what we need? We need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. We need the presence of God. Listen, everything changes in the presence of God. Everything. Let me tell you what. If God shows up this morning in such a way that His Spirit is manifest among His people and He begins to move, everything's going to change in the presence of God. They had a Faith that produced obedience. They had a passion that produced unity. They had a desperation that produced prayer. And they had the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that produced power. You know what's beautiful about that? We can have all that. And we can see God do Exceeding abundantly above and beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. Let's pray this morning. Father, Spirit of the living God, would you fall on this place today as only you can?
the stillness of this moment as you sit before the Lord in a spirit of prayer. We're going to have a time to respond. There are going to be pastors here at the front. These altars up here are going to be open. What is God saying to you today? Maybe you're here today and you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about. This Jesus that changed people's lives. Listen, I met him when I was a freshman in college and Jesus changed my life. He filled an emptiness on the inside that I couldn't fill with anything else. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, when we stand and begin to sing in just a moment, you come to one of these pastors and you simply say, I need Jesus. And they'll have somebody show you how you can meet him and come to know him and be forgiven by him. Who here today is going to be the next Letty Peralta? You're going to grab a hold of the altar of God and not let go until God does what he said he was going to do. These altars are going to be open. You can come. You can get in one of these altars. Just begin to beg God. Maybe... God's done something else in your life and you need to talk to or pray with one of these pastors. Maybe you just need to come and get in this altar and just do some business alone with God. Maybe you just need to turn your seat into an altar. Whatever, however God's moving in your life right now. In just a moment, I want to invite you to stand. And as soon as I do, listen, you begin to move. Some are moving right now. That's all right. You come on. But as soon as we stand, you move. Holy Spirit of God, right now we invite you. Have your way. God, this is your service. This is your time. We've not come here to go home. We've come here to be with you. Move among us in power, oh God. Do, and do beyond what we could think or imagine. Pour out your spirit here, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Let's stand. Our team's going to lead us. As they sing, you respond as God speaks. Right now, you just move. If God's speaking, you move.